Again, um, normally we go through a series on the book of Ephesians, and we've been uh, picking apart, especially chapter 4, and looking through individual aspects of what it means to follow Jesus as those who have been saved by the gospel of his grace. Uh, but I uh, felt very strongly that we should, for the next few weeks, focus on messages that are centered on the cross, especially as we approach um, Easter and Good Friday. And so we come upon actually what traditionally this season has been called the season of Lent. And Lent comes from this English word, Lenten, which actually means spring. When days are lengthened, and when we see the spring is bursting forth, and it's a time that as there's more and more light during the daytime that we anticipate the light of Jesus Christ, and we're anticipating the victory of Jesus Christ over darkness. And it corresponds actually to this time of Jesus in the wilderness, but it looks forward to then the time of Christ's passion and his death and the cross where we see that only through the cross of Jesus Christ, only by his death, can all of us, as well as this world, be made new and healed of all its sin and its diseases. So it's what C.S. Lewis once called a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. Um, this is traditionally a time that's 40 days uh, before Easter, so we're already into it, but that's okay. Um, you know, this is a time that we can begin to just really focus on, I think, what the core of the Christian faith is really all about. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, our calling to Christ himself. Uh, I'm going to invite you to just pray with me one more time. And so uh, let's pray together as we look at this psalm, uh, Psalm 32. Uh, please join me. Father, uh, we do come to you as uh, your children and those who have known fully the grace of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. God, without Jesus, what hope would we have? God, without your mercy, without your tremendous grace in our life. But we thank you, God, that you are so generous in your grace and you are a God who ultimately does not seek to judge us um, or condemn us, but you're a God who in your love seeks to save us. And we worship you. We praise you, God. We're so thankful uh, this morning to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Would you speak uh, through your word and let your word uh, direct our hearts in such a way so that, Lord, our hearts would be drawn to you. And I ask, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so, what do you think of when you think of the word repentance? Repentance. Uh, my simple idea, or the simple thing that I want to really try to communicate through this psalm, Psalm 32, that, Vic, that uh, Vincent just read for us, is Repentance actually leads to joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that repentance really leads to freedom and joy? That it's actually a really good thing. It's, it's a gift. Um, I think that most of us, when we think of repentance, very honestly, 
a lot of us, we just think of it as this real, um, just drudgery. It's this, this necessity in the Christian life. We hear this word repent, and it's like, ah, oh, it's like groveling, you know. We have to humble ourselves, or we have to admit things that we don't like to admit, uh, these kind of things. And to say that repentance is this joy almost seems like this contradiction, right? To say repentance leads to joy. Uh, we would call it maybe an oxymoron. You know what, for you grammarians, English people, right, what's an oxymoron? Two words or terms that seem to contradict one another. So we have words like jumbo shrimp, right? It doesn't seem to, or the California angels, right? It just, it doesn't go together, right? Uh, sorry for those of you who are from Anaheim, uh, as a loyal L.A. Dodger fan. Uh, but yes, we, we, think of, we think of those things. Um, and we think somehow the repentance and joy cannot really go together. We don't link those two terms together. But I want to just really uh, share with you that confession of sin, repentance, really is meant for freedom and joy, not your oppression. And that... Confession and repentance is a great opportunity given by God so that we could be released from sin, from guilt, from shame, from idols. Such a good thing. This is what Jesus desires. So we're going to look at three simple points about repentance today from Psalm 32 as we anticipate going into this season of, as we're going in through Lent and we're talking about this Christian life, this life of repentance this life of looking to the cross, this cross-centered life in the resurrection Jesus. Psalm 32, written by David. He starts off by saying this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And in these first couple of verses, I want to talk about why does repentance bring joy? Why does it bring joy and freedom? Well, this word blessed, this, this penitential psalm, this song of repentance, David starts off to say blessed. And this word blessed is actually another way of saying happy. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be truly happy, joyful from within? Well, he says blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Um, in fact, this word blessed recalls to mind one of Jesus' most famous sermons in Matthew chapter 5, where he gives the Sermon on the Mount, the famous Sermon on the Mount. And the very first words in these Beatitudes that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount is this. He says, he starts off, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. This idea of repentance. Repentance leads to happiness. Um, those of us, I mean, I think in our culture, we're pretty familiar with the fact that even therapists, right, even therapists will tell you this. Psychologists and therapists will tell you that the path to healing always begins with being honest about your weaknesses, being honest about the wrongs and confessing it. They'll always say that, right? 
And um, I think actually our younger generation understands this well. So the younger generation, we're all about transparency, vulnerability, and those kind of things about being real, being transparent. So this younger generation gets that very, very well. Um, now, transparency and honesty by themselves if, can be helpful tools to make us sometimes feel better about ourselves. But in this case, in Psalm 32, it's not just transparency for the sake of making ourselves feel better about ourselves or just releasing our baggage or our, that's not the point. What Psalm 32 is talking about is this, that we need real forgiveness because we have real guilt. We have real shame. We have done real wrongs against a holy God and against one another as well. And so there's real guilt that's in us, that's in our souls. And blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. There's three things that God promises in this psalm for the one who confesses and repents. First of all, it says that God forgives. God forgives. This idea of forgiveness where he says, blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven, is this idea of to lift, to lift up or to remove, literally, to remove. And what it is, is this, this burden of guilt and this burden of shame, this, this sin has been lifted off. This is what God is promising in his psalm. He's going to remove that. And that's a tremendous weight off the shoulders, isn't it? A tremendous weight off the soul. But the second thing that God promises is this, that he will cover over our transgression. And this is a little bit different from, from forgiveness. So to cover over implies that it's still there, but that God is, is going to, um, God is going to just, well, he's, he's overlooking, he's covering over it. Um, this is the implication of it. We're pardoned, um, but we're, there's still what we call sin that dwells within us. And where God, what he seeks to do is he covers to, seeks to cover over this guilt, cover over this sin. So I think about, for example, uh, in the book of Genesis, Noah. So after the flood, Noah, he... He gets drunk, and he's, he's drunk, he's lying naked in his tent. It's very shameful. Uh, he's exposed. And there's this in interesting incident in Noah chapter 9 where his three sons, they come, and the first son who comes is Ham. And as Ham seeks his, sees his father naked, he actually runs outside the tent, and he tells his brothers, huh, our father's naked, and he's actually exposing his shame, he's exposing the humiliation, he's exposing the guilt. But the other two sons, Shem and Japheth, they actually go in backwards, they try not to look at his father's nakedness, and they try to cover his nakedness. They don't want to expose it, they want to cover it. And Noah, he sees what's happening, and then, you know, he pronounces his curse upon Ham, and he blesses his other sons. But when God is exposing your sin and when he's exposing my sin, he's not exposing us to try to embarrass you, to try to humiliate you, to try to, uh, you know, just simply, you know, show you how weak you are. 
But what God's intent is he's exposing these things so that it could actually be covered by him, his grace. This is what God's heart is like. And then the third thing that we find here is this, that God does not count our sins against us. This is actually the idea of counting our sins against us. In verse 2, blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's different from forgiveness. Um, in other words, this is legal language. And this is to say that God does not treat you as you deserve. He does not treat us according to our sinful condition. This is not how he deals with us. In fact, Paul uses this verse right here, and he quotes this in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, where God basically declares a, us, you and I, sinful people, as righteous, and he, um, the apostle Paul takes this from David in Psalm 32, and he says in Romans chapter 4, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Um, and this is a wonderful promise because what God is promising in Psalm 32, and Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 4, is that God not only covers you and he forgives you, but He's going to, but God counts you now as righteous in his sight. He's not going to treat you as a, as a sinner, but he's going to treat you with the full rights of a beloved son. He's going to bless you. He's going to give lavish grace upon you. It's this wonderful picture. Um, but this is the promise that God makes. This is a promise that we find in this psalm. And the reason why God treats us this way is because he already poured out his judgment upon his son, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the heart of the good news, what we call the gospel. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul tells us that Christ became sin for us on the cross so that we can be counted as righteous. He says, for our sake he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him, that is Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing verse. What this verse is telling us is this. On the cross of Jesus, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he was the worst sinner in this world. He had done the worst things, the vilest, most wicked, evil things. God treated his own son, Jesus, that way on the cross so that he could treat you and I as if we were the most righteous people who ever lived. Perfect. Christ made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin. It's not that Christ became a sinner. He was perfect. The most innocent, perfect man who ever lived but he was treated as if he was the most guilty on the cross. This is, if you begin to understand this and get this, it's the most liberating truth in the whole world. And it's the most liberating truth for us as Christians all the time, every single day. This is what we stand upon. But the second thing is this. 
The second part of confession repentance that I want to talk about in Psalm 32 is found in verses 2 through 10. And the second thing is, what does real repentance look like? What does real repentance actually look like? Um, Why do we keep sinning? Why do we keep repeating our sin patterns over and over and over again, right? And for some of you, it's like, well, I've confessed my sins, you know, I think. I've I've confessed the best I can, but, um, but you don't see any real progress or you don't see any real change in your life. You find yourself maybe confessing the same sin over and over again, and yet you're still stuck. You're trapped, and you're stuck in this mire, and you, you find no way out. So there are four things I want to share from verses 2 through 10 about what repentance looks like, real repentance. But here, David writes, first of all, he says this, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the first thing is this. Sometimes as believers, as Christians, we don't experience much transformation because maybe it's the first step. But the first thing is this, you must be ruthlessly honest, ruthlessly honest about your sins before God. Uh, You cannot hold back what it is that as God begins to expose, as the Holy Spirit begins to convict your heart, uh, you cannot hold back what it is that God is exposing. If you hide it, God will uncover your sin. But if you uncover your sin, God will cover it. That is how it works. Um, Tim Keller puts it this way, but he says this. The sin that is most destructive in your life right now is the one that you're most defensive about. What is a sin that we are most defensive about? What is the the one thing that maybe you've been told, that others have talked about, they've even brought to your attention, but it's just you put up the defenses, you know, it's just denial, right? And yet that's the most destructive that's what's most destructive. And, um, you know, it's easy to go into denial because it's really hard to humbly admit it, right? It takes a lot of humility to say, yeah, I really blew it. This is me. Um, as you say these things, I, that's, that's true. That is true. And our tendency is to just blame or to, to make some excuses, but that's, that's our tendency. But look at what verse 2 says. In Psalm 32, David says, a person whose sins God pardons does not have a spirit of deceit, does not have a deceitful spirit. What does it mean, deceitful spirit? It doesn't mean that they're going around telling lies. Uh, The person whose sin has been uh, forgiven does not have a deceitful spirit, uh, a spirit of deceit. That is to say that they're honest. I mean, they're just honest about their sins. They're honest about their weaknesses. They're not hiding it. They're um, They're not in denial about it, basically. It's not that they're perfect, but they're just, they're not in denial about it. That's what it means to not have this spirit of deceit. And so this is what he's getting at. But the second thing is this. Look at verses 3 to 4 with me. 
Verses 3 to 4 says, when I, kept silent, <clears throat> when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The second thing is this. It's not enough just to be honest. Actually, David, what he does in these verses is he's filling his heart with a sense of danger of sin. He's filling his heart with this, the sense of danger. Um, so he talks about these consequences here in verses 3 to 4. There are these three conf, conf, consequences when he was hiding his sin and he wasn't uncovering it. He was uh, going unconfessed. He says, first of all, he says, my bones wasted away. And then he says, your hand was heavy upon me and then my strength was dried up. Um, so what's going on here, what David is experiencing is actually physical con consequences to the sin. So there's, sense, there's a sense of weakness, uh, this sense of physical weakness even that's overcoming his body. Now, let me qualify that by saying that not all suffering, physical weakness and illness is a result of, you know, personal sin. That is not, that is not what the Bible, that is not what I'm, what, what I'm saying. But in this particular situation, that was what was going on in David's life. In this particular case, that was true that he was literally experiencing these consequences and there was a spiritual but there's this physical health that was being compromised because his sin was going unconfessed in his life and what these verses are basically saying is this it is important that we fill our hearts with a sense of sin is not only unhealthy it's like a cancer the danger of sin, you know, just why would we want to, why would we, we want to go into sin? It just, it robs us. It robs us of spiritual health. Um, but there's a sense that David is experiencing in the psalm of God's withdrawal of his protection. David seems to, see, to say here, you know, that when, when I'm, when I'm holding on to sin and I'm not repenting and I'm not confessing, there's almost a sense in which David's saying, but you know, these troubles are coming and I'm experiencing these consequences. This is what, what's going on here. And so he says, in verse 6, he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And this is what David is experiencing. He's saying, when I held on to it, it's bad. But when I confessed it, there was a sense in which God's presence and his protection and his love was, was all around me. I, I could feel it. It's like God is my hiding place. And I could sense God's protection over me from trouble. Now, let me say this, that, you know, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trials and tribulation. There's no doubt about it. Uh, that's the reality of living in a fallen world. And through all the different things that God allows in our life, he is using these things to conform us more and more to be like Jesus. He is. But one of the reasons sometimes, and again, just one of it, of why God allows trouble sometimes in our life is to wake us up, right? To get our attention. To say, you know, wake up spiritually. C.S. Lewis likes to put it this way, but he says, you know, in 
in our pleasures when life is going well, God is whispering to us. It's like, oh, yeah, thank you, God. My life is going great, and this is wonderful. But in pain, God is using a megaphone to rouse us, you know, to awaken us, to say, wake up. And sometimes God allows these things in our lives so that our hearts, our, our spiritual ears would just be awakened more to God. And this is what's going on. But the third thing is this. In verse 9, notice that David says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bricks and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Uh, In verse 9. And what he's getting at here is this. As we repent of sin, as we confess it, we repent not just for the consequences of sin, but because of the evil of sin, because of sin itself. He's using this analogy, be not like a horse or mule without understanding. In other words, um, animals, right, they, they obey you based on rewards and punishment, Right? This is, what, this is what animals do. I have a dog, so I know this very well, right? It's like, even last night, I'm saying, Bruno, come here, come here. You know, he looks, oh, you don't have a treat for me? Forget it, right? But as soon as I whip out the treat, okay, Bruno, come here. It's like immediately he just, he just rushes right to me, right? Um, what can you say? That's a dog, right? That's a dog for you. Um, they have a little bit of loyalty, but... Really, they're still conditioned by rewards and punishment. And this is what animals do, right? It's like, don't be like a horse or a mule. Like, they have no understanding of God. They don't, uh, they don't have the sense of this relationship with God or anything like that. They've got to be curbed. Or it's not going to stay with you. It's not going to follow you. It's not going to obey you. And what David is basically saying is this. Don't be like that spiritually. Don't, don't repent just because you're afraid of God's punishment. Don't be, don't be repenting because you're afraid of the consequences. Because, well, if I don't repent, if I don't confess my sin, bad things are going to happen to me. And if I walk with God and obey God and I follow God, then good things are going to come into my life. That is the wrong motive. That's dangerous. Why? Because in the end, you're still making it about you, right? About your life. But what David is saying is this, when you repent, repent because because it goes against God. Because of the evil of sin itself. Not just because of the consequences to you. Now God can use consequences to awaken us, but that's not the ultimate point. Ultimately, it's because we want to be near to God. We want to walk with God. This is the real reason why we repent for God. Unless you learn to hate sin for God's sake and what it does to grieve his heart, you will not cut sin off at the root. You'll always be changing your behavior. You'll avoid it. You'll do what you can or whatever on on the outside. But unless your heart is changed, you're going to go back to it. So 
you won't really change and you won't experience true freedom and the joy of repentance unless you cut it at the root of sin. Why are you going into that? Um, seeing the evil of it, but seeing how it goes against what Christ has done for you on the cross. I mean, if, if God has given his only son, Jesus, for us, why would we want to sin against his love? This is what he's getting at. But fourth, Psalm 32 says this, that verse 11, I'm going to skip to this, but he says this, Psalm, uh, Psalm 32, verse 11, David says, but be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All you upright in heart. So what's, what's David getting at here in verse 11? Well, he's getting at this. David resolved to make real changes in his life, in his heart. Like, really changed his attitude, I mean, from the inside. This is what David was getting at. So when it says, rejoice, O you righteous, the upright in heart, so what's this upright in heart? The upright heart is not referring to what Christ has done for us in terms of this, this righteousness that's been credited to us. But the upright in heart is talking about this desire from within, from the, the truth in the inward part saying, I want to live for God. I, I want to walk with God. I want to glorify him. I want to honor him. Uh, I want to seek to obey him in every single area of my life, in my heart from within. This is what this uprightness of heart is talking about. It's a, it's a heart transformation. Um, it's a resolution to change. And so David, uh, the fourth thing is this. It's this resolve to make concrete changes. So what concrete changes will we make to say that I want to grow truly in holiness of heart, in righteousness of heart before God? This is what it is to repent. To not just simply say sorry to God, but to say, God, I don't want to, I don't want to keep offending you. If, can you imagine, uh, Mimi and I, you know, in our relationship, right? Like, if I was, like, saying these same hurtful things over and over to her, like, and I said, every time I just said to Mimi, sorry. Okay, sorry, sorry. Yeah, she'll forgive me once, twice. You know, but if I'm, if I'm, if there's no real resolve to change, right, then what does that become, right? After it was like, you're not taking this seriously, right? And this is what David is getting at, that we're not just saying sorry to God. We're trying to cut it at the root and we're dealing with it at the root. And we're saying, I want to be upright in heart. I want to really change. I want to be different. Now, we don't live by the power of our resolutions as Christians. We always rely on the sheer grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, always. But by the grace of God, we resolve to live differently. We do resolve to live completely differently as followers of Jesus. And what enables this kind of repentance? What will enable this? What's going to give you the power, the courage? Well, verse 10. David says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This, 
phrase, the steadfast love is this, this uh, phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament, this chesed in the Hebrew, but this, it speaks of this covenantal love of God. In other words, this covenantal love that God has for his people in the Old Testament Israel, for us, the church, but this love that God says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Um, you may become faithless and you're going to fall and you're going to stumble, but I'm committed to you. I'm committed to you to, to the very end. I'm not going to let you go. And God's promise of love and mercy, despite our failings, despite our failings, we're not talking about perfectionism, not at all. We're talking about how the grace of God, the grace of God truly understood, enables us to walk in this newness of life. And there's something deep within us, as I said, <clears throat> if someone comes before you and accuses you, right, you did something wrong, you know, um, our immediate, def our, our defenses just go up. That's our natural reaction, Right? And if you are guilty and you stand before a judge who has, who's just ruthless judge, right? This ruthless judge who has no mercy, no compassion. What are you going to do? You're going to defend yourself. You're going to defend your case to the very, very end. There's no way you're going to say, well, I admit it. I'm going to, you know, I'm guilty. Um, I mean, we see this all the time. But what if you came before this judge that you were guilty? He has to execute the justice of the law but his heart is completely for you and not against you. What if you come before that kind of judge? And what if this judge promises and offers you that I'm going to put the judgment that you deserve upon my own son so that I could set you free? What if you came before that kind of judge? And after that, this ju judge decides, and better yet, I'm going to take you home with me, and I'm going to adopt you. And I'm going to treat you as a father. And you're going to be my child, my daughter, my son. And I'm going to be committed to you to the very end. This is what David understood about God. We hide our sins from God because we're afraid of his anger and judgment. But when you're confident of God's mercy and you're confident of his grace, we can be honest before God. We don't have to hide. Hiding leads to being entrapped. Confession leads to freedom. My discipler, uh, well, my, um, one of my, my mentors, uh, Meredith Elder, I think I've mentioned before, but he describes repentance like this. I love the way he describes repentance. He's, he he says, repentance is running back to the arms of your loving Heavenly Father. And I love that. This is repentance. Repentance saying, why am I going this way? <laughs> Isn't it so much better to be in the arms of your loving Heavenly Father? Isn't that so much better? Isn't this the best place to be? David knew of God's steadfast love for him based on this covenant that God made in the Old Testament. But we have a better covenant. And this covenant was ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
In the Old Testament, God promised to forgive his people of their sins if they confess their sins by bringing this guilt offering, this sin offering to the temple, to the tabernacle. But Hebrews 7, 27 to 28 tells us, unlike the other high priests, Jesus, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his, first his own sins and then for his, those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We're about to go into this time of the Lord's Supper, and this is truly a time in which we receive of God's grace. Romans 5, 8, uh, Paul says this. He said, God demonstrates his love for you and I, for you and I, in that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. This is how God demonstrates his love. And I'm going to invite Derek to come and just strum for us um, as we go into this time of communion. But as we do so, I'm going to invite you right now to go into this time before God to confess. What is it that God has been exposing? or What is it that God has been revealing to your heart uh, through his word this morning to you? What is it that God is saying, this is an area that I want you to confess, but I want you to repent? There are sins of omission and commission. There are things that we know we should say, act, or do, but we don't. And then there are things that we know that we shouldn't say, act, or do, or think, or have this kind of attitude, but we do. Um, do we pursue God daily with all our hearts? Steeped in his word and prayer, seeking to love and witness the lost? Are we seeking to be this loving example of a father, wife, son, daughter, worker, boss? Um, are we holding on to grudges, bitternesses, this critical spirit? Are we engaging in impure thoughts, materials? Are we overly annoyed, irritated? Are we taking matters into our own hands, rejecting God? Are we seeking to be in control of our life? These are things that perhaps God is, being, is bringing to our heart and saying this is I want you to come back. I want you to come back to the arms of a loving Heavenly Father. Take this moment to do so. Supper, because this is for those who follow Jesus. But if you are willing to repent, if you desire to repent and to turn to Jesus, to to, declare, to trust in Christ, what he's done for you through his death and resurrection, and to call on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then please come talk to one of the pastors after your service. We would love to talk with you. And for the rest of us, uh, let's partake. Let's receive this grace together.